Our epistle lesson can be found in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, your word, this reminder of the gospel of grace. We ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. I was doing a little investigating into uh, the millennial generation, uh, which I am a part of. Now, it ranges from about 17 to about 34, 35. And as I was doing some investigation, I stumbled upon this book called The Dumbest Generation. Now, it was uh, sad to read the title, but kind of hilarious. And as you can expect, the book is expressing a frustration with the realities of the current millennial generation. It's, uh, it, it, it bemoans the reality that this generation has dis, dismissed its fathers and, and mothers and grandparents and its traditions and is attempting to blaze its own path apart from tradition. And I'll read a little bit of the back cover just to give you a little taste of the book. The author says this, They are the dumbest generation. They enjoy all the advantages of a prosperous and high-tech society, yet they use these tools to wrap themselves in a generational cocoon filled with trivial banter and coarse images. The founts of knowledge are everywhere, but the rising generation camps in the desert exchanging stories, pictures, tunes, and texts, savoring the thrill of peer attention. If they don't change, they will be remembered as the fortunate ones, who were unworthy of the privileges they inherited. You see, friends, I belong to a generation that has dismissed tradition, that has dismissed our parents and our grandparents and attempted to blaze this path before us without looking back with gratitude, without looking back and and giving attention to our, our, our heritage, to our tradition, But it's not just the millennial generation. You know, we're not simply the dumbest generation. We're all dumb generations. You see, because we've all dismissed tradition in some form or fashion. We do it in the church as well. We're all tempted to dismiss what was handed down to us. And what was happening in Corinth is that some of the people were dismissing the the, the tradition of the resurrection of the dead. Look in verse 12. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? You know, we're not much different than the Corinthians. We dismiss the value of those things that were handed down to us, just as the Corinthians were dismissing those things that were handed down to them, the teachings, the beliefs, the practices, the life orientations. We set them aside and attempt to blaze our own path. We attempt to grasp something more contemporary, more modern, not because the, the, the tradition is evil per se, but because we believe it to be inferior. You see, the Corinthians believed this tradition of the resurrection of the dead, this belief in the resurrection of the dead to be inferior, not evil, but just inferior to what they believed. And we do this not because uh, we think it's evil, but because we believe it's irrelevant. We believe it's old. We believe it's outdated. We believe we have found a better way. We assume that people in the modern world are not attracted to tradition. We believe that they're not attracted to hard things like the resurrection of the dead. We believe that we have found a better way, and the Corinthian Christians were dismissing this because they believed they had attained a higher spirituality, and so the body was not important. What you do with your body was not important. So you can see this laundry list of things that Paul had addressed, much of which had to do with their bodies. You see, they, were, they believed that the body was inferior. And this idea of the inferiority of the body uh, came from Greek culture and a Greek philosophical system that believed that, uh, that reality, that true life could be found in the ascent of the mind, not in what you did with your body. And so what you do with your body is not important. It was a, 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 a sacrifice of the gospel to a cultural system. And we do that all the time. We dismiss aspects of the truth of God's word, aspects of worship, aspects of commitment to the fidelity of the gospel because we don't believe that they are superior. We find them in some way wanting. And so we dismiss them. But Paul has a different idea of what true spirituality entails. Paul has this laundry list of corrections. You, we, we have seen it throughout the book of Corinthians. He's addressed multiple things over and over and over. He has corrected their misuse of, uh, of their sexuality. He has uh, corrected their misuse of worship. He's corrected their misuse of, of, idol, uh, of idol meat. He's corrected their abuse of the Lord's Supper, much of which revolves around their body. And what Paul is doing is he's following all these corrections with this one reminder. This one reminder, what does he say? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. He says all of these issues are actually a misunderstanding of the gospel, the basic things of the scriptures. All of these things that I have had to correct you for, those things that you have misused, abused, are actually at the heart of the issue, a misunderstanding of the gospel, of the tradition that has been handed down to you, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because these basic truths of the gospel, these basics of the tradition is what constitutes true spirituality. 
and the trustworthiness of our tradition rests on the historical reliability of this event known as the, resur- as, as the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what is that tradition and why can it be trusted? Look at verses 3 to 5. He gives us what, this, what was of first importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's handing down this thing, this tradition, this teaching, this belief, this, uh, this life orientation as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. So He launches into this early Christian creed, and for various reasons, the parallelism and the language used, uh, scholars believe this, this, uh, these few lines, the the confession of Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, to be an early Christian creed. So Paul is saying this is of first importance. So what was of first importance? Paul in the early uh, Corinthian church believed that the main thing was the death of Jesus on the cross in accordance with the scriptures and the resurrection, bodily, physical resurrection. Not just this like appearance of Jesus, but a bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Literally, the, the, the language of the resurrection of the dead, or, or raised from the dead, is the rising of the corpse. So the death of resurrection is not something new. Or the death, of res- the death of Jesus is not something new. The death of the Messiah was in accordance with the Scriptures, is what Paul was saying. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to, to uh, Isaiah 53. Paul is likely uh, referring to this passage in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Israel understood this this figure of the suffering servant to be a a future-oriented figure, a servant who would be sent by God to heal Israel, to bring healing, to bring comfort, who would ultimately take on to himself the iniquities of his people. He would be the sacrificial lamb. He would be the one who would atone for their sins, He would be the final sacrifice for Israel. And Paul understands Jesus to be that one that the Scriptures were pointing to. He says Jesus died, why? Not willy-nilly, not uh, not simply because he he challenged the political, uh, the, the politics of his day, not simply because he challenged the leaders of his day, not simply because he made the Sanhedrin angry, not simply because he made the Pharisees angry, but because of our sin. He died in accordance with the Scriptures to satisfy God's wrath for sin. 
He took onto himself the iniquity of us all. And you see, friends, this iniquity, this sin, these, uh, this thing that we were born with and that we live in because of Adam's first sin, it was not just a corruption of our souls. It's not as if uh, Jesus is just here to save your souls, your spirits. He's here to fix all of you. The, the death of Jesus was meant to fix all of what sin has done. All of what sin and Satan and death have, have wrought in humanity and in creation. Now, I grew up with a teaching that Jesus simply wants to, to save our souls, but it's more than that. Now, it is that, of course. But the, the death of Jesus for sin was meant to, to, to correct all that sin did to the world. The corruption of our minds, the corruption of our hearts, the corruption of our emotions, the corruption of our bodies, the corruption of the creation. So friends, the, the death of Jesus was for a purpose. It was to satisfy God's wrath and it was meant to mend that which has broken between God and creation and God and man. And it was in accordance with the Scriptures. And not only was the death of Jesus in accordance with the Scriptures, so was the resurrection of Jesus. Turn back again, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, to Isaiah 53. Beginning in verse 10. You see, this is the thing that the Corinthians had the, the, the biggest issue with. It wasn't as much the, the death of Jesus. You know, that's, you know, everybody dies, of course. And it's kind of a public event. This Messiah was, this claim Messiah was, uh, died on a cross. But it was mainly the issue with the resurrection. It's because uh, we talked about it earlier that the Corinthians believed the body to be inferior. Not evil, but inferior. And so, true spirituality is a disembodied existence. That's not what the Scriptures say. Yet, beginning in verse 10 of, uh, of Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see... His offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many and makes, makes, not made, makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, even in Isaiah, there's this, this foretelling of a Messiah, of a servant, who would not only make satisfaction for sin, but who would make intercession. Who would, who would prolong his days, who would see his offspring. There is an understanding that this Messiah would actually do more than just die for sin. He would conquer it. Turn with me to uh, the psalm that we read earlier. 
Psalm 16. See, there was, uh, in Paul's writings and, uh, and in the early church, there was an understanding that this Messiah, uh, the, the songs of Israel, the songbook of Israel, the hymns, the, the psalms, were spoken by and referred to the Messiah. Beginning in verse 9, therefore my, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You see, friends, if we understand uh, the Psalms rightly, uh, if we understand that they refer to the Messiah, if Jesus is the embodiment, He is the fulfillment, He is the one who spoke the Psalms Himself because He's, the, he's Israel's Messiah, we have to understand that His he wouldn't see corruption. Not, his body would not decay. He would be raised from the dead. And that's what we get in the New Testament. Is this idea that, that Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. And it wasn't just willy-nilly. It wasn't just something uh, that we could look at and, uh, and, and, and think, oh, that's great. It was according to the Scriptures. It had been foretold. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the fulfillment of the Messiah who would die for sins and be resurrected from the dead. He is the embodiment of the Messiah. He is the Messiah of Israel. And the early church understood themselves to be the continuation and fulfillment of God's dealings with his people. And so they could look back at the Old Testament and they could see it in light of their, their Savior. They could see it in light of their Messiah. This is the tradition. This is the confession of faith, if you will, by the, Israelite, by, by the early church, by Paul and the early Christians. This is what was of first importance. If you got this wrong, you got Jesus wrong. If you got the death of Jesus for sin in accordance with the scriptures and you got the, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus wrong, you got Jesus wrong. This is of first importance. Because to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus was to proclaim God's victory over sin and Satan and death. To proclaim God's victory and to proclaim the importance of an embodied life. That was the tradition. That's what was handed down to Israel. That's what Paul says, hold fast to this unless you believed in vain. He preaches the gospel and that's the basic content of the gospel. But why can it be trusted? Why is it trusted that it is true and right and that we should follow it? Beginning in verse 6, Paul recounts uh, this list of eyewitnesses, this list of reports that you can verify the reality of the actual event. So he says that he believed uh, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve in verse 5, but you know, Corinth wasn't much different than we are today. There, are, there were people who, who, could, who could have said, well, you know, maybe his apostles took his body 
and made it up so that, uh, so that it would suit their desire to start a new religion. And that's not a, an uncommon objection. There are often people in our, society, in our day that say, well, they stole his body and made an empty tomb, and therefore Jesus really died, but he didn't resurrect. So they, challenge, they could challenge Cephas and the twelve. Paul knows that, and so he says this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. So, he's saying that if you're skeptical, go talk to one of the 500. You see, this is a a, a calculated comment by Paul. He knows there are skeptics. He knows there are some who believe that true spirituality is a disembodied reality, that it's not an embodied physical reality. There are some who doubt the resurrection of the dead, that doubt the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul says, well, if you doubt, go speak to the one, one of the 500. They're still alive to this day. And if you need further proof, if you need further reliable eyewitness testimony, who can you go see? Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. To James, okay. If if I doubt one of the 500, who can I go talk to? Oh, the leader in the Jerusalem church. The half-brother of Jesus. James was a, 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 a mighty figure in the early church. He was a trusted figure in the early church. When Paul needed someone to affirm the gospel that he was preaching... When people were challenging him, those Jews were challenging him in Acts 15, where did he go? He went to the Jerusalem church to James, Peter, and John. So if you, if you continue to doubt, if you continue to think that true spirituality entails a disembodied existence, if you continue to doubt the, the tradition of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who can you go talk to? You can go talk to our leader. You can go talk to his brother. You trust that guy, you can go talk to him. And if you continue to need someone else to talk to, verse 8, last of all, as of one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He continues to reaffirm the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, even in his own uh, personal testimony. When I was in high school, uh, my father would tell me stories of when he was a younger, more wild man. And every once in a while, I would think to myself, there's no way that's true. No way. My dad is boring. He's old. He's getting gray hairs. There's no way he was, he was like that. And most of his stories were actually meant to keep me from doing the dumb things that he did. So I'm grateful for them. But most of the time, I thought they were just tall tales. And then every once in a while at family gatherings... I would hear those stories, but they were not from my father. They were from my uncles and my aunts and my grandmother and grandfather. And so I started to, I came to this like existential crisis. Either my dad really was as crazy as he said he was, and now he's semi-normal, or they're all in cahoots. They're all in cahoots and they're lying to me. 
So I, had, I came to the conclusion, oh, my dad, these stories are actually quite true. Because I had heard eyewitness testimony. I had heard someone verify it. And so there wasn't much that I could do to continue to challenge my father. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, if you, if you continue to doubt, go, go speak to someone who had an eyewitness testimony. Paul states that the reliability of the death and resurrection can be verified by eyewitnesses who saw him alive after they saw him dead. And so he states the content of the tradition that he was passing on to the Corinthians was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the tradition can be trusted because of eyewitness testimony. But what does that do to us? You see, Paul was affected by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't just that he intellectually assented to it. But his trust in it actually affected him. It did something to him. And so what did it do? And how does that help us understand what it ought to do to us? We see it in Paul's response to Jesus appearing to him. Beginning in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. See friends, Paul calls himself least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus produced humility in Paul. It produced in Paul a humility because he knows that he's not even worthy to be called who he is. He was a persecutor of the church. He stood over Stephen when Stephen was being, when Stephen was being stoned and killed. He's not worthy. So the death and resurrection actually produce in us humble hearts because we know we can't attain this true spirituality, this better way. That God has given to us. We can't attain it by ourselves. We can't work hard enough. We can't pull up our our bootstraps. We can't can't gird up our loins, to use biblical language. We can't gird up our loins up up enough to attain this higher spirituality. Or to attain the spirituality that God is offering to us. We can't attain the spirit and so it, ought, it produces humble hearts in us. But Paul also admits, I was a persecutor of the church. You see, what the death and resurrection of Jesus did for Paul was it made it okay to admit his fault, to admit his sin, to admit the way he had wronged God's people and wronged God. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus do to us because we know that he died for our sin to do away with it, to satisfy God's wrath. So it makes it okay to admit our guilt, to confess to God and to confess to one another the ways that we have sinned against God and sinned against each other. Not only that, we become okay with who God has made us to be. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. 
said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's not Apollos. He's not Cephas. He's Paul. And he's okay with who God has made him to be. And so what the death and resurrection of Jesus, according to the Scriptures, does to us, it, it, it makes us content. It makes us content with who God is, is, has made us to be and who God is making us to be. Who God is forming and fashioning us to be. And lastly, he says, On the contrary, I, was, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, what the death and resurrection of Jesus did when he knew that he no longer has to attain something that is beyond his grasp because God has given it to him as a gift, when he no longer has to work to satisfy God's wrath, he works out of gratitude for God. He works harder, more strenuous than any of them, than any of who, than any of the apostles. He was talking about being least of the apostles, but he worked harder than them. Though even that he can't take as credit to himself. Because it wasn't him, it was the grace of God in him that allowed him to work harder than anyone else. It allowed him to turn away from self-seeking and to turn toward self-sacrifice. Friends, how is this basic confession forming or transforming you? How is this truth of the death of Christ for our sin, His burial, His resurrection from the dead, and His appearance, as recounted in Scripture, how is it changing you? How is it changing me? What is it doing in us? How is it affecting us? Because it's not meant to just be believed. It's meant to be lived. It is a confession that is meant to change us. I was, uh, Cassie and I have, have gotten into this TV show. It's a reboot of an old show, Hawaii Five-0. Some of you grew up watching the original, uh, and I've gotten into the new one. Um, it's modern and innovative, and it's a higher spirituality. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's about these, these two police officers. One is a Navy SEAL, uh, who, commander uh, of uh, SEAL Team 9, and then he goes on to start this, uh, this, this squad of police officers called 5-0, and his best friend, Danny Williams. So Steve McGarrett is the SEAL, and Danny Williams uh, is a detective from New Jersey. And he's kind of emotional and, you know, he, boisterous and he gets angry easily. And Steve is just this solid, rock-solid machine. And Danny says to him in one episode, at the end of the episode, he, he looks at Steve and he goes, you know what you are? You're a half-baked cookie. You're hard on the outside and you're soft and gooey on the inside. He said, a kid steals your car and you give him a job. And he looks over at their team of misfits, police officers who had been debunked. He looks at them and he, he looks back at Steve and he says, you're a mender of broken toys. And that's why I love you. 
You see, friends, God is a mender of broken toys. He is a mender of broken human beings and a broken creation. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in what He is doing now in your lives, in what He will continue to do in your lives, in what He will do when Jesus comes back, is He will mend broken toys. And you can trust it because you can trust Him. Let's pray. Lord God, You are the great mender of ourselves. You are the great mender of creation. We thank You and praise You this morning because of what You have done to us and in us and for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We ask that You would continue to do that. We ask that You would continue to mend us, continue to fix those things in us that are broken and corrupt and continue to give us Your grace so that we could walk in newness of life, so that we could walk in the ways of Christ our Savior. We ask in His name. Amen.